Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Great to see all of you. Welcome to our online community as well. I was part of the online community last Sunday um, because I fell uh, pretty sick. And um, in the 16 years that I've served at Seven Oaks Church, um, I've preached sick before, uh, but usually, you know, with a cold or something where I take some uh, Advil or take something and then just kind of get my way through and then, and then go home and crash in the afternoon kind of thing. But there was no preaching this, this time. Oh, no. So um, uh, on, on Friday, I was lying on the couch. I was texting the staff saying, I, I think we need a plan B because I don't think I'm going to be able to stand on Sunday. And um, I have to tell you that it was, it was taking all my energy to send a text. I needed a nap after the text. Like, it was that bad. It was so bad. So anyway, um, so all that to say, I want to thank my staff for rallying. I want to thank Brad Cheese so much for stepping in like you did. Really appreciate you. And I know that was kind of late to get a text when you were working, I think, on Friday. Hey, Brad, any chance you got something for us, man? And um, so really appreciate you doing that. And I learned some cool stuff, like Weebles. I didn't know what that was. I'm English. I'd never heard of that before. So... Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. I'll never forget that. So that's a, that's a great image. Lovely. Wonderful. All right. So what we're going to do with um, the series then is I was slated to preach on Bathsheba last Sunday, and then we were going to finish the series on the women in the genealogy today uh, with Mary. And then next Sunday, which is the first Sunday of Advent, believe it or not, um, we were going to go into our Advent series, taking us up to and including Christmas Eve, if you hadn't noticed yet. Uh, Christmas Eve is a Sunday this year, so we will have a regular church Sunday morning, and we'll also have our kind of Christmas Eve evening carol service as well, so just FYI. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to preach Bathsheba today instead of Mary, and then we're going to do our series as we had planned for Advent, but then on the evening of Christmas Eve, we're going to circle back, and it works really well, doesn't it? We're going to circle back to Mary on Christmas Eve. And don't worry, I don't preach a full sermon in the evening. I usually do like an eight to ten minute devotional, but it will be based around uh, Mary, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, f- to that on Christmas Eve. So that's how we're going to handle the, the series. Uh, before we dive in uh, today, uh, it is the last Sunday of November, so I just want to bring you our sort of financial update as we move into the, um, the final month of the year. So uh, coming up on the screen, I think uh, behind me uh, soon is our, uh, our figures, and uh, we are in a deficit position, which is uh, pretty normal this time of year. Um, the information uh, is, yeah, maybe we're having some trouble. It's okay. Uh, the information is also in our bulletin, our, our December bulletin. It's there. Perfect. Um, so you can, you can look at it. It's in there. Um, there's information on how to give, ways to give, and um, uh, church office hours and all that kind of stuff that you might need to know. So um, this time last year, we were also in a deficit, and um, we finished in the black. We had a great year, and we took out about a third of our debt uh, that we were carrying from that second COVID year of 2021. Uh, it was over 100,000 last year, and we took about a third of it. So uh, that was wonderful, and I'm confident we can uh, rally and finish the year well this year so we can start uh, without hindrances in the new year. So if you would just join me in this final year in praying, uh, you know, being prayerful about how you might uh, do some end-of-year giving uh, so that we can try to clear that together as, as church family. So that's the, that's the update for us. All right. 
Most of you probably know that um, in 2022 and over into 23, uh, I took some sabbatical time. And um, rather than taking one big piece of sabbatical, I actually split it up. And so uh, I actually did a hike, if you remember, in 2022, which was a, a long uh, kind of getaway in the wilderness with the Lord kind of experience attending to my physical health and my spiritual health. And then what I did was um, I split the rest of the time up over 18 months, taking two weeks at a time, based around four retreats that I was taking uh, with an organization called Soul Formation because I was in a program called the Academy of Spiritual Formation. And so I would go down to Oregon. Um, uh, there's a retreat center outside of Portland and um, spend time down there with a, a group, a cohort. We were working together, and it was phenomenal. It was wonderful. It's designed for um, Christian leaders, not just pastors, but Christian leaders, uh, particularly those who have been in ministry for a little while or maybe for a long while, who are, are really leaning into going deeper with Jesus to assess, you know, how am I doing with carrying wounds that maybe I've picked up through life? And, and how, am I, how am I going to avoid burnout and those kind of things? How do I stay resilient in ministry for the years ahead? And that kind of thing. And it was all about practicing disciplines and so on. And uh, it was wonderful. It was such a great experience for me. And uh, on the fourth retreat, which was in this past September, uh, we met together. And one of the things that people are sharing over the 18 months together that we were doing was, was sharing some of our struggles. And, and, and one of the things that the women on the course were sharing, so there was probably about half of us were men and half women. One of the things that the women were sharing, my sisters in Christ were sharing, Christian leaders, female Christian leaders, were, and it was shocking how many of them were, were, were the struggle that they had feeling called by Jesus into ministry, making all kinds of sacrifices and studying and preparing themselves for ministry, only to find in certain contexts that wars were put up to them because of their gender. And I thought to myself, I never faced any of that just because I'm male. And it was really kind of hard to, to, to do that and to understand what they've been going through. And so one of the things we did is we actually, as, uh, on the last uh, time together, we actually, quote unquote, ordained the women. And, and we're not an ordaining body. We don't, we don't really ordain anyone. Of course not. But, but we spiritually ordained them. And what we did was we gathered around the women and we spoke identity over them. We spoke love and affirmation over them. We affirmed their calling. Um, God gave me a prophetic word to speak over them. And some other people had that as well. And, and the tears were flowing. And, and, and it was really a beautiful end to some of the woundedness that they had picked up uh, over, over their life. And the reason I share that with you is because we're in a series called The Five Women of the Genealogy. And I've been talking to you about various reasons that some of the women in their stories, as we've been looking at them, show up in the genealogy. But I also said that at some point I would talk a little bit more about the macro sense of why women in general are in the genealogy. And this is my conviction based on the scriptures. Um, one of the things that happens in, uh, in the Old Testament is that with the fall of humankind, one of, the th one of the results of the fall was that there was going to be an antagonism between the sexes. And you can read it in Genesis 3. Men will do this, and women will do this, and they, they, they'll, they'll have this issue. Before, I believe that we had this beautiful sort of co-stewardship arrangement in the garden and this wonderful complementary kind of experience. And as a result of the fall, the genders began to, uh, to kind of compete 
And, and so the patriarchal culture that resulted in the scriptures, in my opinion, is not the culture that God designed, but rather it's the culture that came out of the fall. And one of the things you can see throughout the scriptures is that God doesn't come and just obliterate culture. What God tends to do is he comes into cultures and he comes into organizations and he comes into families and he redeems in the midst of them and he works in and through them. And one of the things you notice in the scriptures is this theme right throughout of God raising up women in the midst of a patriarchal culture. And so, uh, so you see it in the genealogy. You see it in people like Miriam and her leadership and Deborah in the Old Testament and different uh, women like that. You see it in the New Testament in the way Jesus interacted with the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery. You see it as, as women were the first ones to not just witness the resurrection, but preach the resurrection. It was women who preached the resurrection first, not men. You see it in, in some, of the, some, of, some of Paul's lists at the end of some of his letters, the way there are deaconesses and leaders and so on, and, and how the church of Philippi met in the home of Lydia, which probably meant she was the church leader, and on and on and on. And there's this trajectory through the scriptures of God not obliterating patriarchal culture, but raising up women within it. And so I, I believe that's one of the reasons, in a macro sense, that women show up in the genealogy of Jesus. This isn't just going to be about the men. This is going to be about women as well, and God uses them in that way. We're in this series then, and we've looked at Tamar's story, and we've looked at Rahab's story, and we've looked at Ruth's story. Today, we are looking at the wife of Uriah's story, also known as Bathsheba. And I have to tell you, and it seems a little weird after all that I just said, but when you tell the story of Bathsheba, you cannot help but tell it and almost focus entirely on David, right? Because it's all about David, actually. There's not a lot about Bathsheba in there except the one piece. Um, the whole narrative is focused on David. So I'm going to be telling a lot of the story about David, but actually it's also the story of Bathsheba, and we're going to circle around to that and why uh, she's in the genealogy. So um, I need you to lean in with me a little bit because we're going to read a long piece here. We're going to read the whole of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and the first 15 verses of 12. So if you're feeling a little bit sleepy, kind of shake your head or whatever, wake yourselves up and try to lean in. I know it's a large portion, but it's story, so it's fairly easy to follow along with. So... Are you ready? All right, here we go. Second Samuel 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the, uh, from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to fetch her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, now she was purifying herself after her period. In other words, the baby that's going to be born couldn't be anyone else's. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. 
Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And he did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you've come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah remains in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will do no such thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem on that day. And on the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew were the valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Other people died as well. We sometimes forget that. It wasn't just Uriah. Other people died too. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Don't you know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on, on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you should say, Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and they came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David becomes all philosophical about it. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this matter trouble you. The sword devours now and one and then another. Press and attack the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her into the house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and many herds and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He bought it up and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie at his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who would come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who would come to him. Then David's anger was kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. 
He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you've taken his wife to be your wife and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this very son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you'd utterly scorn the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Then David went to his house. Thanks for hanging in with me. God's word to us today, it's a, it's a long one. It's a, it's a hard one to get through. With Tamar's story, we were in the time of the patriarchs, the sort of prehistory of, of Israel. By the time we got to Rahab, we'd move forward to the conquest when they're ready to go in to, to take the land. By the time we reach Ruth, we're in the, uh, the period of the judges. I, I talked to you about that, about being Israel's dark ages. Now with Bathsheba, we've moved even further along the, the history line and we've moved into the monarchy. Israel is now a kingdom. It's a monarchy and David is king. So from the, the dark ages of Israel to the golden age of Israel. And the story uh, that we're told here begins with the army out on battle. It's spring. They break for the winter. They pick up their battle campaigns in the, in the springtime. And off they are. But David is at home. He stays in the comfort of the palace. And it could be that this piece of information for us is a way of saying, you know what? David should have been out there with the men. If he was, this wouldn't have happened. Maybe. Or it could just be, this is the way things are now. It's not so necessary to risk the king. We have a standing army and we have uh, generals and, and leaders and commanders of the army who can handle the war. David can stay at home. He doesn't need to be there. We're not really sure. It could be either. It doesn't really matter. But the one thing that is true, though, is not just for David, but all humans, including you and me, is that ease and security so often act as a prelude to moral failure. Ease and security, you could add to that comfort or whatever other words you want to add, so often acts as a prelude to, to moral or spiritual, moral and spiritual failure. For Christians, it's so true and so often the case that when we're in a difficult time and we're struggling and we have to depend on Jesus for everything, we have to hold on to him, we need him to come through for us, we're having a nightmare in our family situation, our financial situation and whatever it is, and we're clinging to Jesus and we're looking for him and we're asking for him to help us and to lead us and to deliver us. When we're in that place, we're often a little bit more immune to sin and temptation than we are when everything's kind of cool and easy and comfortable and up and to the right in our lives. 
Isn't that true? It's a little bit like maybe we, we maybe for kids, but, but also for, for adults as well. If you're away at summer camp or you're away on a missions trip or you're away having some kind of spiritual high and you're experiencing the dynamism of close Christian community and you're growing together and learning together, then when you come home, sometimes it's possible when we pass into ordinary life, we become complacent in our faith. We don't read our Bibles as much. We don't pray as much. There's not the same felt need for God to come through for us in certain ways. And it's easy to make small little compromises and begin to drift spiritually and morally and so on. Isn't that true? And in those times, it's easy to be lured and tempted into sin that puts up a barrier between us and God. James says it so well in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, one is tempted by one's own desire being lured and enticed by it. And when that desire conceives within us, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, beloved. And we fall for it all the time. Don't think, church family, the enemy doesn't see your complacency or self-reliance and start to rub his hands and thinks this one's going to be easy pickings. So the temptation for David comes in the form of a beautiful woman who's bathing herself on an adjacent building. David is on the rooftop of the palace. He's taking an afternoon walk. He sees her uh, building there and he lusts after her. It was always going to be money, sex, or power. Right, the three big sins. It wasn't going to be money for David because he's pretty wealthy. It didn't need to be power because he's the king of the land, so sex it is. And there he sees her, and he lusts after her, and he decides to go and take her, and he sends his men to go and get her. At any point along that trajectory, he could have stopped, and he could have fallen on his knees before God and said, Lord, help me out of this temptation. Uh, after he sent the guy, he could have sent for the men, no, come back, no, I don't want to do that. Like, there was lots of points at which he could have interjected, but he didn't. He allowed it to progress. And, and, and you know what? He's the king. Uh, likely Bathsheba doesn't really have any say in the fact. And people will often say, yeah, but you know what? Bathsheba was probably being provocative. Don't tell me she didn't know that she lived close to the palace. And don't tell me she didn't know that David went for afternoon walks, and so she's provocatively bathing herself to entice him. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe, possibly, but who cares? Don't let David off the hook. He's a big boy. He can exhibit self-control. Don't let him off the hook. She may have been doing that. She had stuff to gain. She's a fallen human like everyone else. Sleeping with a king would probably be a pretty cool thing for her. Maybe she gets away into the palace or something. Maybe. But who cares? Let's be really clear here because David is the one that lusts. David is the one that sends for her. David is the one who exploits his position and his power to take what he wants. Talk about me too. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that David is the sinner. Maybe Bathsheba is as well. The Bible just doesn't say much about that. But the focus here is on David, and he sins. And this is one of the things 
that I love so much about the Bible. There's many things I love about the Bible, and, and you do as well. But one of the things I love about the Bible is that it never glosses over stuff like sin because of the personality involved. It's not like, well, he's the king. Like, let's hush that one up, right? No, 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 no. The Bible won't do that. There were contemporary nations uh, at the time that told all kinds of inflated histories. The Assyrians were really good at this. Um, all kinds of inflated histories to make the kings look good. Today's governments and industries and businesses are perfectly moral, right? Yeah, we could go down that rabbit hole for a little while. Um, no, at every level of government and business and industry, there's corruption and cover-ups all over the place. We know that. But the Bible doesn't do that. If the king sins, the king is going to be called out. That's what I love about the Bible. There's no covering it up. Everyone's on an even playing field. So David, here's some shocking news. Bathsheba's pregnant. The game's up, buddy. She's pregnant. And, and her husband is fighting for you. Excuse me, you scumbag. Right? He's fighting for you out on the front line. And, and, and so people are going to know that Bathsheba didn't sleep with her husband nine months from now when she gives birth. She stepped out. The game's up, buddy. But things get worse and worse and worse. Again, David could have at this moment, he could have confessed his sin and dealt with it and not allowed it to become this big monster, but he doesn't. And that's a word to all of us. We have to be really, really careful where we allow sin to build to and move to. And the story becomes downright wicked. David attempts twice to weasel himself out of it. He sends for Bathsheba's husband, who is called Uriah the Hittite, which is important information we'll talk about in a minute. And essentially asks him for a report on the war. And if I was Uriah, I'd be like, what on earth? Why are you, why are you asking me, a conscripted Hittite soldier, for a report on the war? Don't you have generals for that? How does he even know who I am? It's weird. But he's the king, so if that's what he's asked, so here's the update on the war. David doesn't care. He, he's not interested in an update on the war. He's trying to cover himself up. Take a break, Uriah. Since you're here, go down to your home. Eat and drink. Stay, uh, stay at home. Sleep in your bed and so on. In other words, go and sleep with your wife. Because then nine months from now, when she gives birth, even if he looks a bit like me, um, no one's going to know, right? There's no paternity test then, because you were here nine months ago, and you slept with your wife. The thing is, David grossly underestimated the pious nature of Uriah and his uprightness. How can I go and enjoy my wife and my home while the rest of the army are risking their lives? He's a principled man. So he doesn't go. So David tries again. This time he gets Uriah drunk. He plies him with alcohol, hoping he'll become amorous and go down and sleep with his wife. But he doesn't. It turns out, church family, that a drunk Uriah is more pious than a sober David. Right? Let that sink in for a minute. A drunk Uriah is more pious than a sober David. And that's our theme, or one of our themes. Righteous Gentiles, righteous foreigners, righteous people who are not part of the covenant people, outshining the pious nature of Israelites. 
And we've seen that throughout, and we've seen it throughout the scriptures, and we see it at the time of Jesus, when Jesus gets in the face of the Pharisees who should know better, and he starts saying things like parables, including people like, don't you remember Naaman the Syrian, uh, and, and so on. And, and Jesus does that. And, and it, it's kind of building towards this Gentile inclusion in the gospel. And so, David realizes that he's not going to be able to cover this one up. Again, that's another point at which David could have come clean. But he doesn't. He just keeps digging. The only way out is to have Uriah killed. Because if Uriah is dead, then Bathsheba can become his wife. And nobody will be any the wiser. It's a perfect plan. Except God sees everything. The last part of the story then is the confrontation of David by Nathan the prophet. Pretty precarious position to be Nathan, to come and get in the face of the king and tell him he's a sinner. So, so, so Nathan actually is pretty shrewd and he tells a parable. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a disarming way to do it. And he tells this parable in this sort of bold move. And the parable is of this poor man who, who can only afford one tiny little lamb that he brings up as his own. And, and shares with him his meager food versus this rich man who has flocks and herds all over the hillsides. And when a traveler comes, it's customary to prepare some hospitality, some food for them. And the rich man could have used one of his many animals and not even notice, but he's miserly and he's greedy and he seizes the poor man's one animal and he slaughters it to serve it up for dinner. And David gets sucked into the story. David gets sucked into the story, and he gets outraged. He cannot believe that the man would do such a wicked thing. And he says, he deserves to die. And in doing so, condemns himself. This man deserves to die. And Nathan turns and says, you're the man. You're the rich man in the parable. Thus says the Lord. I gave you everything, David. I rescued you from Saul gave you the kingship of Israel and Judah. I gave you a home and wives and a family and blessings and riches and honor. And here's Uriah the Hittite, one foreign conscripted soldier who has nothing compared to you. And you took his wife? Are you kidding me? You are the man. And David is caught red-handed. He's got nothing to say. There's no sleight of hand. There's no more digging, David. There's no way around this. You're in the dock, buddy. And in fairness to David, he finally confesses and says, I've sinned against the Lord. He finally humbles himself. David actually gets to keep the kingship after admitting he'd sinned against the Lord. He's told that God will spare him and have mercy on him. And although there are consequences for his sin, and that is so often... The case, and in fact, if you read the rest of Second Samuel and into, into First Kings, it's an outworking of all the things that happen in David's life as a result of his failures and his sin. And you can read it, and it's, an, it's a nightmare. And, and, and that is what happens so often uh, with us, is that God is in, infinitely forgiving and merciful and will blot out our sin and our transgressions and make us new and pure and right before him. That's the beauty of the gospel. But there are consequences that often hang around of our sin. And so it's far better if at those points earlier on, we can actually head it off and say, God, I'm, I'm getting out of my depth here. I've done wrong. I don't want to get in deeper. Help me. Forgive me. 
And one of the consequences is that David and Bathsheba lose their child. And this is where we bring Bathsheba back into the story here. When you think about Bathsheba, I can't help but think, poor Bathsheba. She's forced to sleep with the king, perhaps against her will. She loses her husband to an early death, and she loses her infant child. Talk about brokenness in, in Bathsheba's life. And so one of the reasons I think that Bathsheba shows up in the genealogy of Jesus is because God is actually redeeming some of her story. And so when she marries David, they have another son called Solomon, becomes one of the greatest kings of Israel. And Bathsheba has a, a, a great future in, in that sense. He's the, the mighty, mighty king who builds the temple in Jerusalem. And now this is the line through which Messiah will come. And so burned right into the genealogical line is this story of, yes, brokenness, but also of forgiveness and also of redemption as God begins to redeem uh, stuff in Bathsheba's life as well. And it's burned right into the genealogy. And so partly I think this is to redeem Bathsheba's story, but there's also a nod to Uriah there. And, And I think the reason that, you know, Tamar is called Tamar, and Rahab is called Rahab, and Ruth is called Ruth. But then Bathsheba isn't called Bathsheba. She's called the wife of Uriah. I don't think it's a slight against Bathsheba because she's such a sinful woman. I actually think it's a nod to Uriah. The faithful, upright foreigner, the Gentile, conscripted Hittite soldier fighting for God's people, doing the right thing, and pays the ultimate price. And I think it's a nod to him. And so, church family, as we close out today... What I'd like to do, and in fact, I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to come back up onto the stage. Uh, What I'd like to do as we close today in terms of sort of an application for us is I'd like to read over you an extended version of David's repentance. Um, In the passage, it's just as it's five words, David says, I've sinned against God. But Psalm 51 is the extended version of David's repentance over this sin, and I think it's worth us Uh, uh, reading it. So what I'm going to do, it's not going to be on the screen purposely, um, because I'd actually like you to to consider just closing your eyes. And I'm going to read it, and it's heartfelt, and it's raw, and I've I've used portions of Psalm 51 in my own life as I've confessed my sin, and and maybe you have as well. And I'm going to read it slowly over you, and I'm going to change the pronouns from singular to plural, so it's like, um, it's, it's us as we confess our sin. And as I read it over you, here's my encouragement of what you should do. Close your eyes and listen to the words and allow the words to wash over you. And if the Holy Spirit begins to prompt you with some things in your life you need to confess, quietly confess them to Jesus and make the words of Psalm 51 your words. And so we're going to have a moment of confession. It's spiritual workout. It's, it's making things right between us and God. And what you find is, although when we sin, um, it, it's amazing just the fact that we get forgiven, but what we also find is the blessing of, of, of the weight of our sin actually gets lifted as well. It's like this double blessing. And so, church family, whether, whether it's some big, terrible sin or some just little thing, whatever it is, allow the Spirit to bring it to your mind because we need to be in a practice of continual confession. And Protestants don't do that very well. Uh, we don't do that all that well. So we're gonna, or, or maybe we do it in our own private lives, but we don't do it together very well.
So why don't you close your eyes and let me read the words of David, the words of Psalm 51. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly, Lord, from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For I know, we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. Against you, you alone have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, we were born guilty. Sinners, when our mothers conceived us, You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in the secret of my heart. Purge us with hyssop, and we will be clean. Wash us, and we will be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within us. Do not cast us away from your presence. Oh God, do not take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us in us a willing spirit. Then we will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver us from bloodshed, O God, O God of our salvation. And our tongues will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open our lips and our mouths will declare your praise for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen.